You're listening to the Irish Times Roisin Meets podcast. Welcome back to Roisin Meets. When Joanne McNally developed anorexia and bulimia, she didn't just lose weight. She lost jobs, friends and fellas. But she didn't care because she could wear bangles as belts and that's all that mattered. Then one day, over her morning carrot, Joanne realised that she'd lost her mind. Trying to entice it back became the hardest, funniest, greatest and weirdest time of her life, during which she began to write comedy. Her show, Bite Me, is the result of that very creative period and Joanne is currently touring the country with it. She took a break from her nationwide jaunt to come into the studio and tell me all about Bite Me. Joanne McNally. Yes. Bite Me is back. It is. Um, after you went to Edinburgh, how did that go? I'm not going to... I I don't... Oh, Edinburgh's tough because it was... Mm. I was very satisfied when I came home, but I won't say I enjoyed it. Okay. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done. In terms of getting audiences, in terms of just not being from there, all that kind of thing? Everything. Yeah. So you're over there, there's three and a half thousand shows a day on at oh the... Oh my God. Edinburgh Festival you are one of them unless you're Darrow Brian no one really cares about you so every bum on seat is hard earned now I was in a good position because I was in a good venue like one of the listed venues as such so I didn't have to do the show in a urinal on the street, which is what some people were doing. Um, but it <laughs> really? meant, well, you know, they kind of just throw yeah. them up. That's the kind of thing oh, about yeah. the fringe. Like, you're like, oh, there's a show in a wardrobe. And, <laughs> you know, it's the next Jason yeah, Byrne. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I w- had a little bit more credibility than that, which helped me because um, I was in the assembly, which is one of the venues there. Um, but yes, yeah, so you're flyering your show all day. That you're right there on the street. On the street, flyering yeah. a show performing your show and because By Me isn't a traditional stand-up piece it's dark comedy theatre I've only realised this in the last okay, couple of weeks Okay that's good that you know that yeah. now <laughs> Yeah because I had these fl- flyers um, helping me flyer the assistant show Assistant flyers Assistant flyers okay. I was basically managing a whole team <laughs> over there Roisin um, I had two people who I was paying minimum below minimum wage I'm sure there's a legal situation there but I don't even know it's if I the paid them economy. In the, the gig economy I actually don't that's know if I paid mean. them I think I gave them a bottle of book fast at the end of the run but so and I, they were going because they 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 don't know me and I didn't know them yeah. and that's fine. But they were flyering people in saying Irish comedian <laughs> so supported yeah. Tommy Tiernan yeah. and I was like, whoa, eh? I've never supported Tommy. I met him once. I walked past him. Do you know what I mean? And secondly, this is a dark comedy theatre piece about eating disorders. <laughs> like, please stop selling it. Did it just come to you then? As a stand up. Like, something's wrong about this. this yeah. is, I realise this is it a dark. Feels, it was more seeing the faces of the audience. <laughs> They're like, is Tommy not here? And I was like, this feels wrong. Um, because I know that they just wanted to get people in. And yeah. Irish comedians have a really good reputation yes. in Edinburgh. So you would get people in um, by telling them it's an Irish comedian who supported Tommy Tiernan. But then I would rather have um, 12 people who know what they're, or not necessarily know exactly what they're coming into, but 12 people who aren't going, who are going to enjoy the show and appreciate the show Mm. rather than 60,000 who are going to be sitting there going, what is this? Do you know what I mean? And did you have audiences? Like, did did the flyering work? It it worked. It worked so well. Like, I wish it didn't work and then I wouldn't have to do it. It's so effective. It's infuriating (laughs) how effective it is. Like, I had a 60-seater room and, like, I got good kind of chat about the show as well and I got good reviews and all that helps. Um, But, like, the difference in numbers against, like, there was one, you you do a show every day um, for the month and then I was doing stand-up 
at night as well as well oh, okay. so it was like 36 37 shows I did in four weeks like I was a zombie mm. um, and yeah so Edinburgh it was I felt as I said satisfied <laughs> It's a very interesting word to use. Sad. I was sad. I felt it was the first time ever I felt qu- quite proud of myself. Actually, oh, okay, that I'd accomplished it and that my first one was under my belt and it had been, you know, a success. Yeah, in my eyes. And you got good reviews. I got good reviews. I got good numbers. Um, I met bookers. Um, and then the stand-up gigs I was doing were like, you know, the kind of best of the fest mm. and that kind of thing that I. Are there? A, it's a good groundwork for next year. Then right, as so well. you'll go back next year. Oh yeah, I'll go back so every year. We better tell people about the show then. This yes. dark, this piece of dark, dark comedy, comedy theatre theater. that you did, which mm. isn't a stand-up show at all. It's not. No, no. I thought it was. So, um, I struggled with uh, bulimia and anorexia for a long, long time. But for the first while, I didn't know I was unwell. I just thought I was on a really, really good diet, and that I was smart, and that you just hadn't figured it out yet. Um, a detox, if you will. And then obviously slowly it spiralled and spiralled. Um, and then I ended up in a mental institution. So I wrote a show about it. Oh, that's mm. good. You, I think Nora Ephron said, everything is copy. That's what she said. You know who wrote um, Sleepless in Seattle? No. Yeah, everything is copy. Everything, is, I totally agree I with think, that. I agree with that too. Everything. I know. Yeah. Sometimes when I'm struggling to write, my mum will yeah. say, "You know, maybe she used to get the bus." That's it. That's my mum. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'm, like, I'm I, trying to write a stand-up show. No, no, she's right. And my mum would say that as well. She'd be like, well, "What about that thing you were saying the other day when you did?" I'm like, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'd be slagging your first one, going, "Mom," and then I'd be like, "Oh yeah, actually, I know." Really good. Then 800 words later, Colin I know, done. isn't it mad? Yeah. Sometimes it takes other people to point out yeah, stuff to yeah, you. Yeah, that's true. But when I was unwell, I had a lot of time on my hands in between treatment, and I started writing about it. At the time, I was working in PR and I had to stop work everything Mm. had to stop and I went into treatment Um, and I'd always wanted to write but I don't think I really had the balls to do it Um, so I started writing anyway because it wasn't going anywhere and I put it up I put up this kind of anonymous blog I think it was something about the girl who ate the pastry or something or no it was after what was that thing it's your man who ate the peach uh, James and the Peach, Joanne and the Peach. Okay, anyway, whatever, right? Yeah. So I, I mean, Roald Dahl has a book called James and the Giant Peach. It's not that you're. Was it Joanne and the Giant Pastry? I can't remember what I called it. Something okay. I thought was incredibly smart at the time. These are the early days of your career. <laughs> yes, okay. The first thing I wrote, <laughs> and um, so I started writing about it. And the first piece that I wrote was this awful, like spoken word, like rhyming, oh, okay. like just you know, regurgitation, pain. Like it was so bad. It was so bad that when we put the show together, it was. But you know, my director was like, "I think you should open with that." Absolutely, and, and make then people the think end, that that's yeah. Like, and then at the end, go only messing, <laughs> and then go into the show, um, because it was awful. But I just obviously had to get that little fate that I, I had a spoken word phase for fourteen minutes. Did you? Yeah. yeah. Everyone does, though, yeah. don't they? It seems like you're nobody if you haven't had a little spoken word. Yeah. Phase of your life. So I had a little spoken word afternoon, and then got that out of the way, and then moved on with my life. <laughs> Um, and then so I started writing this stuff and I actually thought at the time I was like maybe it'll be a book but then I remembered I have the attention span of an aunt on 12 Americanas I was like right well that's never going to happen so Una McKevitt who directed me in Singlehood which happened around the same time because I wasn't working um, so Una thought that maybe I'd like to do some stage stuff and she decided for me she was like let's make it into a play and I said okay so she went and did all the bits and kind of got us into the fringe and that kind of stuff and dramaturged the script 
And yeah, so that's how the show was born. So tell us about it. I mean, Louis Walsh sort of stars. Louis stars. So the... the Has he been to see it? Louis, yeah. my pal. Well, we need to get Louis in to see it, I think. Well, we tried to send him an invite to the opening, um, but it was he'd just been taken off Twitter for trolling someone. Okay. So the one time in my life I well, tried to I contact... I that was really Louis, though, on Twitter. I think that was a fake Louis. Was it? Yeah, well, that I would make more that. sense. Yeah, it would, wouldn't it? Yeah. Because he was trolling that um, guy, Christopher something, who was in The X Factor. Do you remember oh, your yeah. with a lot of I don't time. think that was really Louis. I'm just going to put that on the record. Here. Yeah, it's now that you say it. <clears throat> You're defaming Louis Walsh. <laughs> now you That's say a good start, John. Yeah. Tell so me about Louis Walsh in relation to your eating disorder. Oh yeah, sorry. Um, I'm glad that troll didn't turn up though. <laughs> um, so the, the show is based around one major therapy session, which is actually a load of therapy sessions yeah. that I've kind of just crammed into one because there was a load of like penny dropping moments in it um, and what they do in therapy I think for a load of mental health issues if you're being if your mind is telling you to do weird stuff they ask you to make that voice into something else someone else mm-hmm. so that you can argue against it because if you are telling yourself to do weird stuff in your own voice you go along with it mm-hmm. because you trust yourself and that's why it takes so long to realise there's anything wrong because you're checking in with yourself it's all so the time. It's so simple, isn't it? It's so obvious. I mean? Yeah. So the voices, so anything to do with like anorexia, bulimia, eat that, don't eat that, binge that, purge that. You're terrible, you're, you're, you're horrible, fat, you're, you're All those things yeah. had to be put into someone else's voice. And she she offered me a duck. She was like, some people find a duck useful. What? Yeah, I know. Who would want to listen to a duck? Like a in duck. a kind of a Donald Duck. <coughs> that kind yeah. of voice. Oh, really annoying. And I was like, yeah. oh, no, I can't no, roll can't, my tongue can't. like that. It's not, it's not going to work. So I made my eating disorder Louis Walsh because at the time he felt um, easily undermined. Uh, without any offence to Louis, and so it, it and because Louis, but Louis in his line of work is very encouraging, but all, often backs the wrong act. Let's be fair. Yeah. So that was how I saw it. That I had this voice who was like, you know, yeah, you're the best. You're, you know what I mean, you're the thinnest. Don't let anyone else tell you you're not. And so that was how I undermined him eventually. Plus, I thought it was funny. It was. It is funny. Yeah. And look at you in Edinburgh and, and on a nationwide tour. And it gives a nice visual to the show. So I have a voiceover. I got um, John Caleri, who's a com- comedian, to do a voiceover of Louis Walsh, who like issues commands throughout the show. And what kind of things does Louis say? So he would be. So I was. Well, I was explaining in the show um, that because eating disorders are very lonely. Like they're very lonely because you go into yourself completely and you can't really live in the outside world because in the outside world everything is just a threat to your body um, or a threat to your progress. Um, so. Louis would, I, I say in the show, he had us like hooked up to this state-of-the-art earpiece system that only he and I were privy to. And it was this ongoing secret monologue where he directed me and I just performed accordingly. So he would say to me, "That what, you, what did you eat? That wasn't planned. You're going to have to binge all that now or purge all that now. Like all these commands. Plus it gave me some company. <laughs> it gave me some company. It wasn't on my own all the time yeah. because they are very, very lonely. I remember once sitting on my bed and it was the summer and I'd just come in from treatment. Like I had no life. Like I had reduced everything down to food and my body. That was all I had time for. Um, and I remember sitting on my bed and my phone was beeping with all these WhatsApp messages and people were planning things like, let's go to the pier, let's go for dinner, let's go for drinks, let's go drink wine. And I couldn't get my head around why they weren't at home in their bedroom 
concerned about their weight like I was. I just couldn't understand how they didn't care. I just couldn't get my head around it. And I remember once asking my therapist about it because it happened in stages. For years and years, I denied there was a problem. Eventually, I cracked and admitted there was something very wrong, that I wasn't on a detox. Then you begin treatment. And then there's all these, your brain is still in this awful cycle with food. Like you basically have to remap your entire relationship with food and yourself and how you eat and everything. Like it's a really, it's a very difficult thing to do. But I remember the therapist saying to me, the reason you still feel this is so important, even though you know now you have a mental health issue, is because your eating disorder or any addiction comes into your brain and basically just erodes 90% of your headspace and just lives in there, which means there's only 10% left of your brain to deal with anything else, like your work or your family or your friends. And that's why nothing else feels important because it's so, it's trying to exist in such a tiny space. And so she was saying in therapy, what we'll do is the more therapy you get, the the eating disorder will shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink until the other things feel important again. And I remember being so relieved that day because I, I couldn't understand how I was supposed to want to get better, even though I knew I was unwell, but it was still the most important thing to me. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I couldn't get my head around it. I, I didn't know why. I didn't care about anything else anymore. And what was going on with your family? I presume they were really worried about you. They were. My mom, my brother was going to meetings. I didn't know my brother knew. But my mum had told him um, eventually because, I mean, it was very obvious there was something wrong with me. And he had been going to treat like um, meetings for family members, yeah. which was lovely. So when I did eventually tell him, he was like, I know I've been actually going to meetings for the last six months. And my mum, I had to move home and move in with her. And I mean, it's an awful disease to have to live with. And we fought like cats and dogs. I felt she didn't understand enough and... She, I mean, how could she? She's not equipped to deal with that. And so, there, but she was a massive support, like the support, mm. until I was well enough to go back off to the real world. Mm. She let me live in her attic, which is mm. where all the Joanne Frank stuff came from for comedy. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about Joanne. So she let me move back. I moved back home, and she moved me into the attic, and that's where I lived. Now, the it sounds terrible. It's a lovely attic. Do you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, so I started writing all this stuff, this Joanne Frank's diaries, and yeah, anyway, that's in the that's in another show. <laughs> Very good. So you got better. I got better as people can. Yeah, and I yeah, think yeah. That's an important thing. To, yeah. to talk about, isn't it? Completely. And the the my the most exciting thing for me was. I assumed, again, one of the stages in the recovery was, okay, I accept that I have to live a different type of life. I accept that I can't do this to my body anymore. I accept that it's destructive. Um, But now I know what, because I was so tiny at the time. So I'm like, right, I know I have to put on weight. I just have to accept that I will always be unhappy with my body from now on. If I can't live, if I can't live with Louis, if I can't, you know, us exist in our own little world and I have to go back out to the other world I know I'll never like my body again and that's just what recovery will be for me I never thought I'd get to a stage where I would be happy with my body and I'm totally happy with my body now Mm. and I'm like four sizes bigger than I was that's brilliant and I never thought that would happen and is it something you have to keep working on is it one of those things that you don't really like I suppose recovery you can recover but is it something that you can forget about now like Uh, No, I would never forget about it. I think it's like there's some part of my brain that maybe is imbalanced in the compulsion side. I think someone said that to me once along the way and it stuck with me. Um, 
I think it was probably a coping mechanism for whatever was going on at the time. I wasn't happy at the time. This was something I could focus on. I mean, you hear the word control all the time. And it took me, it took me eight years of illness and a year of treatment. It took me nine years to accept that it was about control. Because even for the first month of, or the first year of treatment, I still thought it was about my body. Mm. Um, so I would always be aware that if things get a bit hectic, because sometimes this job can get a bit hectic and I'm traveling loads and yeah. whatever else. And if I find myself kind of obsessing about anything, I'll like check in or I'll go to a counseling session um, and just stay on top of it, basically. Hmm. And I'd always stay on top of it. Like I have a kind of a, I think I have a quite an addictive personality. I know people throw that around, but I do. I, th I tend to have weird coping mechanisms. So I would always have to be aware of what I was doing. Or sometimes now if I lose weight, the girls, because you can't get away with anything. If you had an eating disorder at any stage, you can't lose a pound. You can't refuse a single dessert. <laughs> you can't turn down a biscuit. <laughs> and suddenly everyone's looking at you like you've got 12 heads. And I lost weight for a holiday recently and um, the girls are like, are you okay? <laughs> I was like, yeah, why? I just, yeah. And they're like, you're very thin. And I started freaking out then being like, am I? Am I relapsing into anorexia? And I wasn't. I just lost four pounds for a holiday. But I don't think there's any risk that I could relapse because I have so many people watching me all the time <laughs> which is annoying but also lovely yeah and you care about things now I mean that space in your head is much wider much wider yeah like the the eating disorder space is I'm not going to say it's gone but it's not active okay it's dormant. Yeah. Um, Eve O'Connor has written brilliantly about this too. Have you seen yes. Overshadowed? And it seems that um, there's, I think, and particularly women are are really telling great stories at yeah. the moment about really important things that, I don't know, I wouldn't say men can't articulate them, but there are things that really affect women in, in a big way. Obviously, there's men yeah. who have eating disorders as well. Um, I'm not discounting that, but it's really great to see all these young people talking about these important things and in yeah. your own case, making them funny, which, you know. Yeah, I met her in Edinburgh. We kind of fell in love in Edinburgh. Um, <laughs> She's great. Isn't yeah, she? she's deadly. And she sent her mum and all to see bite me. Yeah. And some, yeah, it was great. She's fantastic. But yeah, and I know that men do suffer with eating disorders as well. But I think the statistics are it's it is mostly women because women feel that their body is. And this is what I felt like. I felt that my body was what I had to offer the world. Like that was what I was going to be judged on. Yeah. That was how I was <clears> seen. And nothing else really mattered unless that looked the way it was supposed to look. And of course then, like, I mean, I looked awful. Like in the end, I looked absolutely awful. Um, but at that stage, I was kind of out of my mind. So I didn't realise I'd completely lost it. But I do think women can feel like that way more than men do. And what is it, um, when you look around now, what are the kind of things that you think when you're looking at younger people and maybe people who may suffer from this as well. Mm. What are the bad sort of media messages and the imagery and the stuff that we're seeing? Do you know that I actually, I, firstly, I think social media actually gets quite a hard time. Sometimes I talk to people about the difference between, like an eating disorder is a full on mental health issue. It's not a, a weird diet. Yeah. It's not like you just have to go into a clinic to see that. Um, and I think because of that, like I say in the show, like I didn't develop an eating disorder from reading too many Cosmo yeah. magazines. Now, it was somewhere I could go mm. to reaffirm what I already thought. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't help. Yeah, It fuels it, but it doesn't start them. Mm. I really don't think it does. Um, 
I also think social media gets a very hard time for that. I think there's something, it's flipping now. Back when I was growing up, three years ago, uh, <laughs> it, there was this, that was the heroin chic thing was yeah, in. Yeah. And I think that that was what I was fueling myself with. But now I think there's way more positive role, like body yeah, role models. Yeah. Like I was actually at, I was gigging at um, Longitude there uh, during the summer. And I went in and when I was a teenager, we were so self-conscious that in winter we wore giant Umbro jumpers and in the summer we wore giant Fila t-shirts <laughs> and we just lessened the load of the book. But we weren't wearing, we weren't like exposing yeah, ourselves yeah, yeah. at all. Like we yeah. were mortified about yeah. our bodies. And when I went into Longitude, there was girls all shapes and sizes like rocking it. Yeah. Hot pants, tank yeah. tops. Not caring. Not caring. Yeah. Like there was no... I mean, yes, there was the very thin girls, yes. but there was there was all shapes and sizes. Which you wouldn't have seen necessarily before. Have. So I agree with I you. I think, think there's definitely, have. on the flip side of all the, if we look at, say, the Kardashian influence or the yeah. kind of Instagram bad influence, there's also a whole other flip side to that where yeah. people are seeing people. Like we had a great woman on called Tess Holiday, okay. who's this plus size model and she is one of those sort of icons and there just wasn't those people. No, because you, they, you, you were all hidden them. away. You, yeah. were, you, were, you were shamed and you were put in the corner and that was it. Yeah. But now, People, young women coming up who are us different sizes are able to go oh okay I'm still okay yeah. and even if you know my body can be offered to the world in a different way and I can yes. still wear these clothes or I can you know they were so they just seem so confident and like it's a cliche but confidence is actually the most attractive thing it doesn't matter what yeah. you look like or what size you are or whatever if you're owning what you are yeah. you just look like a ride there's yeah. no <laughs> doubt about that yeah. and because you can find anyone you want online now mm. to look up to or to emulate yeah. um, so I think they're in a much better position and I think position. it's really important to talk about that too because we can I mean even I was going down that road with you what media messages are out there that are terrible like we should be maybe focusing on the fact that actually yeah. it's better for younger people because when they want to access these role models or different ways of thinking yeah. it's all at their fingertips yeah, now yeah, yeah. Whereas we, I mean, I'm older than you, but like I certainly didn't have any of that. And as someone who was not skinny growing up, you know, all I had was the constant message that mm. I was a bad person yeah. because of that because I didn't fit in. Yeah. Whereas now if I was, you know, younger, I would be able to go, I would be much more in a position to argue to myself. Actually, you know, there's all there's room for everyone. I and, know. Um, I do. I'm glad that young people have that now. Yeah. They also, there's, they're, it's kind of going off the point, but I do think they're, I feel sorry for them in one way. I'm about to be really patronising because... That's what we do when we get past, you know, 25. Grant. Yeah. I'm really good at that. <clears throat> um, so, <clears throat> because I think they are under much more pressure. I think they're much more sexed up than we were. Um, like the Umbro Jumper did protect us to a certain degree. Um, they're much more sexed up, which in a way I admire them for. But in another way, I feel a bit sorry for them. Yeah. Um, and the pressure to like, they're, they're so immaculately made up. And it's like the YouTube videos, it's amazing. I, know. I have a niece and I just can't get over it. I'm looking at her going, How do you how can you do this shading I and know. stuff? Contouring I like believe it. their eyebrows are impeccable. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah. And like there's women on there who were like normal looking yeah. women and then suddenly they do this like doodle on their face with the brown stick <laughs> and they look like Kim Kardashian. And I'm like, oh, I've never been able to pull that yeah, off. Yeah. So I think there's pro, there, there's pros and cons mm. to the amount of access they have to yeah. these images. Um, yeah, we were just kind of like, 
bit of Earth Star lipstick, <laughs> the two hair bits dragged down the front of the face, <laughs> and you were gone in a pair of tracksuit bottoms, and you thought you were the bee's knees. <laughs> Um, it, was a, it was an easier time. Yeah, it was an easier, was an easier time, time back in the Three years ago, Roshis. Yeah, three years ago, yeah. <laughs> so what have the responses been to the show? What are audiences telling you or what feedback are you getting? They're so, like, look, I'm sure there's people who come to the show and don't like it, but they just don't get in contact. <laughs> so I don't have to worry about them. Mm. Uh, so anyone who does contact me, it's all really positive. Like, mm. some of it's really special stuff. Um, maybe it's someone who has an eating disorder had an eating disorder, there's been a couple of people who've said that it has spurred them on to go back to treatment or go to treatment. Some people said it gave them the confidence to admit that they actually had an eating disorder. Um, all the feedback I've been getting has been really, really positive. And then it's not just people with eating disorders because I think it's, it's, I like to think that there's more to it than a show about an eating disorder. Um, it's about addiction. It's about... You, you, being deluded um, and it's funny it is funny I think it's funny and there aren't many comedy shows out there about eating disorders I don't actually know if there's any <laughs> when I was sick I was looking online about um, trying to look for stuff that would make me stuff I could relate to that could make me want to recover and so much of the uh, chat online about eating disorders is very young girls um, holding up placards you know, with the sad music and the grey fade saying like, I haven't eaten, drop the card. In whatever amount of days, drop the card. And I was sitting there in my late 20s going, I can't relate to this at all. Um, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with what they're doing. It just wasn't the yeah, way wasn't I wanted you. to tell a story. Yeah. So I, that's, I wanted to make something that was lighter. But I think the most interesting stories are the ones with light and dark in them. That's what I like doing. Singlehood mm -hmm. was like that. Me and PJ's show Separated at Birth was like that. Bite Me is like that. I think it's more interesting. So what are you doing next? I don't know. I'm in the middle of making a documentary for TV3 um, about people who, well, it was supposed to be about people who regret having their babies, but we couldn't find that many of them to talk publicly, even though there are loads of them. So now it's more about, because I don't think I'm going to have a baby. So I'm 80% not going to have a baby, 20% going to have a baby. I hope they're the right stats, are they? <laughs> totally right. Imagine every woman. Every woman feels like that. Yeah, you see, but you see, do they though? Because no. I'm like 34. No, they don't. Yeah, you see. But a lot of women do. Some women do, but also women aren't yeah. allowed to say that as well. That's the other the thing. thing. It's a big stigma. It's a taboo. I, I think as well this the motherhood. <clears throat> there's this myth of motherhood that's sold to you that you will have a burning desire to have a child. Then you will have a child. You will connect with the child straight yeah. away. Um, it'll all be, <laughs> you know, like rainbows and lollipops, and that's not the truth at all it really isn't and when I talk to when I've been talking to women for the podcast or for the show because it came out of me talking to my friends and all of them because I was obsessed with this idea of this maternal instinct yeah because I don't have it do all your friends have it no yeah so but they all have babies oh yeah and I was funny. like why did you have a baby and a lot of it was well it was felt like it was the next thing to do I was bored of going out at weekends <laughs> Like there's all these kind of decisions made. No one was like, I've wanted a baby yeah. since I, no one said no. that to me. So I, I, that made me more open to the idea of having a baby because I was like, oh right, these are just rational decisions being made rather than this burning desire to have a child. Which we're sold that we, that is programmed into us yes. and that this and will arise and that we will suddenly be overcome with exactly. the desire to have a, a child. So then if you don't yeah. have one, if you don't have that yeah. desire, you start thinking, yeah. oh, I'm missing some sort of mom yeah. chip. Yeah. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Um, and then, so I started looking online, there's all these forums 
about people who genuinely regret becoming a parent. They all say they love their kids. None of them say they don't like their children, but they say it just it's just not for me. There's so much sacrifice in it and um you know the general feedback is you have to really want them. So then when it gets really hard you stick with it <laughs> or you remember why you did it in the first place. So it's kind of just shining a light on parenting and how difficult it actually is and talking to we talked to this girl Holly Brockwell over in the UK who was sterilized um at quite a young age but she no doctor would sterilize her for years mm. um so she ended up going public with it and when she ended up on this morning uh, in the UK and they she was vilified yeah i mean it's the other side of well sort of the it's sort of similar to the abortion thing as well yeah. isn't it you know it's like there's something wrong with you and you're somehow demonic if you decide I don't want to do this. And yeah. for someone like her to do decide to do that before she even gets pregnant, yeah. that's the worst in the world. Yeah. You know? And for for women to say they don't want to have children yeah. and without saying I'm just too selfish because yeah. I don't agree with that either. I think no. that's not necessarily But it's also really interesting because, I mean, it's it's such a private thing. If if a man at 25 decides he wants to have a vasectomy and doesn't want any children, like, who is going to... It's none of it, nobody's business. No. But there's this kind of public ownership of our wounds yeah. and says, oh, that woman who was 18, she couldn't be sterilised, she might regret it. But that's her business. Yeah. If she regrets it, that's for her to deal with. Yeah. It's none of your business what, what, what she does. And you know? it's a public ownership of your story. So yeah. uh, for a woman, you feel like, because I'm 34 now, and you almost feel like my story will stop if I don't have children, my personal story kind of stops yeah. because my role is to procreate and to make other babies mm. and make other lives. And my life doesn't hold as much weight anymore unless mm. I'm making another life. Um, so that's kind of the basis of the documentary. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. And your purpose, your have purpose, you got a, your purpose. A name for the documentary? Well, I wanted to call it Baby Hater. <laughs> But I think TV3 are having an issue with that. I hope you win. <laughs> I hope you win. I think they wanted someone was talking about calling it Maybe Baby. And I was like, no, Baby Hater. But unfortunately, I don't have any sway yet. Yeah. But, but hashtag Baby Hater would be good. Oh, we'll just that. do that anyway. Yeah. yeah, we'll start it, right? I've been calling it Baby Hater because okay. I'm in denial. Hashtag Baby but, um, Hater. Yeah, it's about a woman's purpose. And like, uh, what, you know, am I seen to be... Valid unless... Exactly. If you don't do that. If exactly. You, yeah. Is that yeah. kind of, you're not really a woman then? Exactly. Yeah. Very interesting. It's fascinating. And I do think that more and more people are able to say, I don't want to have children. I'm ch- I want to be ch- I'm child free by choice is a thing. Child free, yeah. No, interesting. Yeah. And equally if people do want to, it's nobody's bloody business. I, I just can't get over it. Why yeah. is it anything that we talk about? So you know, personal know. choice. But thank God people are or else we wouldn't exist. So power to them. Yeah. Power That's to the parents. True. It's great that they did for us. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I totally appreciate yeah, my yeah. existence, but I just don't know if I'll be existing anyone else. <laughs> and that's a technical medical term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know, existed you, 12 kids. Yeah, yeah. I haven't you existed have anything. You're going to have a nine-month <laughs> gestation of existence. and Because so, yeah. like, it's just the time yeah. they're at, but like so many of my friends now, they're it's like they're counterfeiting kids. They're having like three a year. I don't even know how they're physically doing it. I'm like, how are you pregnant again? You just gave birth. They're all like kind of manic. They're like, get it out of the way, get them out of the way, get them out of the way, get them out of the way. Yeah. And the rest of them are having miniature dogs. The girls who okay. aren't having babies are having little chihuahuas. And have you got a chihuahua yet? No. I'm way too have... much. Oh yeah, okay. I have a lot of love to give though. You could like, get one of those flyering people to mind your chihuahua. Well. While I'm away, the diva, that's something Alan Carr would do. I could totally do that. Um, but no, I'd love a pug. I'd love a rescue dog. I love fat, 
um, squidgy things. Yeah. I mind a friend of mine's French bulldog, Lola. She's so stunning. I do have a lot of love to give. My boyfriend said he'd get me a goldfish. Okay. Yeah. So we're, talk, we're in talks about that. And does your boyfriend want to have children? No. He is. That's handy. Yeah. He's a baby hater as well, is he? Yeah. Hates babies. Yeah. <laughs> hates babies. <laughs> well... I think whatever you do next after your documentary and your next show will be brilliant because everything you do is and um, I would urge everyone to go and see. You've got three dates left on your nationwide tour. tour. So we've got uh, November 7th, the Lyric Belfast, November 9th, Axis Ballymun, which is a great venue. Mm -hmm. And on November 10th, you're in the very like big and kind of a bit scary pavilion theatre in Dunleary, but I suppose nothing to you after Edinburgh and all those shows that you did over there. Um, but listen, it was lovely to talk to you again. Thanks, Rashin. And uh, please come in and tell us about your next stuff. Definitely come in about hashtag baby hater. Oh yeah, I'd love to, yeah. yeah. And we'll call it that all the way through. Please. And the, your publicist from TV3 will be going mad. <laughs> They'll be cutting the wire and all. <laughs> I hope so. Joanne McNally, thanks very much. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Joanne McNally for coming into the studio to speak with me today and for making me laugh, as always. And just a reminder that you can catch her on stage with Bite Me on November the 7th at the Lyric in Belfast on November 9th at the Axis in Ballymun and on November 10th in the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary. Jennifer Ryan produced today's podcast with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Roisin Ingle and I'll talk to you next time.